Okay. Uh, thank you all uh, for coming uh, today. Welcome. And uh, for those of you who came last night and uh, are back again today, uh, war fools you, but thank you. Uh, and for those of you who have not, thank you very much. And uh, go see Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Kevin, because it's very good. The, not the movie. Uh, okay. So what I wanted to do today was something more, much less formal than what we did uh, last night. That is, last night was a more formal lecture where I talked and you pretended to listen. Um, but this time what I'd like to do is really, you've all read the three stories, uh, and really to have more of a guided conversation about them. I want to hear what you think. I want to try and get to an interpretation of these stories. As I said, uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer, uh, who recently would have been 100 years old, celebrated his centennial, was someone who was justly and widely praised for writing stories which seemed ostensibly much more simple than they actually are. They seemed to be... Uh, sweet evocations of the shtetl or of American life or something like that. But underneath, there was something a lot more complicated. And one of the things that I think we can try and do in our conversation is to bring out some of the complexities in some of those stories uh, to try and see if we can get to the depths of what Singer is really trying to get at. And I want to spend uh, the first period, and, and in fact, I think it'll probably be a good portion of the time, talking about Singer's signature story, and that is Gimple the Fool, uh, probably the most famous of his stories, and historically, the one which really broke Singer as an American writer. Uh, it is not for nothing that Singer became the first writer in any foreign language to be canonized in the Library of America. Uh, and Really, although he was, of course, a Yiddish writer, his first language was Yiddish, and he would continue until the end of his life to write all of his works first in Yiddish, uh, really succeeded much more widely. Certainly, he would not have come to the attention of the Nobel Prize Committee if he had not succeeded so widely in translation. Uh, but translation is not quite, in general, an accurate word for the process of rendering Singer's stories into English. Singer himself worked very, very extensively with his translators, with his editors. He went through various revisions uh, of the works. And in many cases, uh, the works are not uh, identical and, and, and quite dissimilar at times to the original, so much so that uh, Singer began increasingly to refer to his English language stories as his second originals, rather than uh, translations. Uh, and I think he, he also did this to make English readers feel that uh, they were really getting original literary material. But he also, uh, they, they really are quite different. Uh, this story, Gimple the Fool, was much earlier in his career. He, he wrote it in the 40s. But it was translated uh, in, I think, the only case, perhaps, of one Nobel Prize winner translating another by Saul Bellow in uh, 1953, uh, what had happened was that Irving Howe, a name that some of you may know, uh, a, a very famous Jewish intellectual and author of a, of, a, of a great history of American Jewish life, or a period of American Jewish life, World of Our Fathers, uh, had actually come across uh, Singer's work, uh, suggested to him by his partner in many anthologies, a man named Eliezer Greenberg, and said that he had this moment of real... Uh, you know, like a bolt from the blue, when is it that you get a chance, he wrote, to discover a new major writer and insisted that this appear in the magazine, the very influential intellectual magazine, Partisan Review. Uh, 
Bellow then translated it, and it is basically a fairly faithful translation with one very notable exception, which I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. We'll get to it over the course of talking about the story, but which renders uh, certain changes in the story as a whole. But we can say that I think Bellow has really managed to maintain with his own substantial gifts, of course, as a writer, some of the, the, the charm and the uh, ironic complexity of singing story. So let's just get right down to it and just let me ask, uh, you know, how foolish is Gimple? Let's just start with that. I mean, the story is called Gimple the Fool, although the Yiddish word that is used is Gimple Tom, which has the connotations of perfection, of moral perfection, not only foolishness. If you were going to call someone a fool in Yiddish, does anyone know what word you would normally use? Anar, right? Of course. Right, you would say anar. You would not use the word Tom. And so already Singer in, in the story, we don't have that real connotation in English, that, that distinction. Well, Tom has a, a whole bunch of different meanings, right? Uh, one of which one could say naive, which could say also carries a Hebraic pr uh, proportion of perfection. Uh, please, please, yes. Good. Okay. Uh, let me first say I am delighted that everyone is getting into the conversation so early. Uh, I am going to ask to ride herd on you just a little bit that people have to raise hands because otherwise you're all going to be rude to each other. I don't mind if you're rude to me, but, uh, but, but to each other. So uh, I've heard here a number of things. First, from the Haggadah, certainly something that singers Yiddish readers would have been very familiar with, and the tale of the simple son. Uh, I, I, excuse me, to say that there is the, the wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the son who knows not how to ask. And there, there is a kind of virtuous naivete, one could say. Certainly, there is, or Tom would have reminded people of the word tamim, right, which means, as you said, perfect. It would have reminded also people, as, uh, which is a word from the biblical portion of the Hebraic lexicon, it also would have reminded uh, people of the only person besides Jacob who is referred to with the word tamim in the Bible to use the word tam. And does anyone know who that is? There's only one other person in the Bible who is referred to with this word tam. I'm sorry? It's not Benjamin. It is actually Job, which I think when we think about that, we can also think of the story a little bit, or at least one reading of the story, as a bit of a gloss on the Job story. Finally, and I don't want to get into this too much, but there is a very famous story by one of the few Yiddish writers that Isaac Bashevis Singer explicitly respected, the Hasidic master Nachman of Bratslav, which is referred to as the tale of the simple man and the wise man, the tale of the Chacham and the Tam. And uh, in that story, it is, again, the simple person who comes out on top, so to speak, who is the person who Nachman likes the best. So all of this just as a way of showing you, first, how much can be put into a single word. Admittedly, it's an important word. It's in the title. Uh, but how many things you can read when you uh, learn to approach these things with a, a full background in Yiddish literature, which is why I recommend all of you, you know, fly over to New York and take my classes. Yes. <laughs> Tomorrow. Petty, the Hebrew word. Right. No, I think that that's a that, that that is a good point. Also, that again we have this sort of idea of the foolish, 
uh, individual as well, uh, who is and, and the credulous individual. So again, let us get back to the story that we have all read, which is the English version, uh, and say how foolish or how naive or how simple is Gimple, right? You, the rest of the verse which you quoted is someone who believes everything, right? How credulous is Gimple? Please. Good. Does anyone want to comment on that? Anyone want to keep it up? Yes, absolutely. You remind me more that he's like gullible instead of naive. Okay. How would you describe the distinction for you between naive and gullible? Well, naive is just um, you don't know anything. Gullible is you believe what you expect. Okay. Okay, good. So when we talk about some person, right, who is faced with a claim, right, the rabbi's wife is in childbirth, the Messiah has come, right, whatever it ends up being, right, we have a various series of choices, right, of the way that our minds work. We can say, wow, that is, at, we're not even thinking, right, unthinkingly, that is true, because why not, right, that's just someone has told me. Or you can say, is this true or is this not true? I have to use my own cognitive processes in order to make a decision about this, and then I will act in this way. So what are the states from the text Again, and you can look on the pages if you'd like, or you don't have to, but what, how does Gimple go, what kind of process does Gimple go through? And then how does this fit in to this kind of transformation Gimple goes through through the story? Because he does do things. He does, the, the story is about Gimple's motion through his life, although whether he changes or not is sort of a question that we may want to decide. Let's look at the beginning of this. Right? He says... Um, this is on page four, actually, in the, in the Collected Stories version. It's at the end of the, it's at the beginning of the second full paragraph, right? This is after it says, Gimple, your father and mother have stood up from the grave. They're looking for you. And again, this is towards the beginning of the story, right? And he says, to tell the truth, I knew very well that nothing of the sort had happened. But all the same, as folks were talking, I threw on my wool vest and went out. Maybe something had happened. What's going on there? What is the process of Gimple's thoughts here? Please. It seems to me that he knows that he doesn't know everything. Okay. And that this is certainly possible. He may or may not have experienced it before. There's always stories. So just in case it's true, he's ready to go out and see. Okay. So on the one hand, we have this voice of Gimple's, Gimple's voice of self-skepticism. Right, of saying, look, I know people are mean to me all of the time. I know people are trying to pull my leg with a lot of things. Right? And so on one level, he does have the intellectual capacity right, to say, in fact, you're kidding. Right? And sometimes he does that. Right? He says, nah, you're kidding. And then everyone piles on on him more. Right? Countervailing that, we have two different forces. Right? The first is this idea that it comes from the kind of Jewish traditions in which Gimple and Bashevis Singer grew up in, of saying all sorts of things are possible. Why couldn't this be possible as well? It doesn't seem very likely. It's more likely that people are making fun of me or want me to do something silly, right? But hey, fair enough. But there is another reason why he does this as well, which is what? Why else? 
besides this, and that's certainly part of it, right? But why else does he want to believe, or does he go out and actually look to see whether his father and mother have risen from the grave? Yeah, please. Okay, good. I think that he is certainly dealing with this, and this is portrayed both by himself and by some of the figures in the story, at least on the level that we're looking at it now, as a kind of moral virtue, right? This idea that all of these other people are trying to make fun of him or this and that, right? And he says, look, I'll believe them because what does it hurt me to believe them really, right? Maybe it turns out it'll be right. And it's, uh, you know, it's a nice thing for them. Right? It's a nice thing towards them. I don't have to be mean to them. I don't have to get angry at them. Right? It's important that Singer points out, if you recall, that Gimple is a man, at least so he reports to us, of tremendous physical strength. He says, right, I'm no weakling. If I slugged the man, I'd see halfway to crack out. But uh, he willfully sort of tamps that down in order to say, uh, I will believe Remember, uh, let's look on page uh, where he speaks to the rabbi. Uh, if anyone can find this, I'm bad with the pages. The next paragraph. Thank you. Yes. Do you want to read that, please? I went to the rabbi to get some advice. Stop it. Thank you. Right? So, in the story, it seems that we have this sense of both not foolishness or naivete or gullibility, but it becomes a willed gullibility in order to achieve moral perfection or moral virtue. And in fact, we can read this sort of optimism that you're talking about as a kind of consciously willed optimism in the face of the world's evil. And remember that Singer is writing this during the Second World War. Right? So, as a result, you said, look, the world is a terrible place. People are doing all of these nasty things for really no apparent reason. Right? There is, they don't seem to have any agenda, all the people who make fun of them. It, it's certainly at the beginning of the story, except for the gratification of their own perversities, right? Whether they be sexual perversities with his wife or whether they be, uh, you know, any other reason. Just sort of to make fun of the weak guy. But he manages to rise above all of this, right? The ultimate development then becomes what? What is the major crux of Gimple's conflict in the story, right? Where is Gimple's test, right? If, again, this is in some sense a Midrash, if we can use that sense, a, a larger expansion of the Job story. Job is asked to curse God and then die, right? What is Gimple's test? Yes. I don't know if I'm correct, but in this reference on line 8, the little line where he says that he doesn't believe this, that he looks at his testimony. Good. I don't remember the exact words. Good. He has an answer, and he goes, Good. So he says, today it's this, and tomorrow it's God himself you don't believe in, right? And so that we have on the level, as you say, I think this is the ultimate test, right? That ultimately becomes about belief. But there's an actual, uh, you've got to a much more subtle position than I was. I was looking for a set of actions that Gimple has done, a, re a real test, 
Right, what is the test, please? All right. When, when his wife has a child, right, all of this. And, but he is faced with a, a figure, I think, even of a tempster, a trickster itself. Yes, please. In a very unique way. That's a very nice way of putting it, right? This is to see whether or not you read the story. If everybody, right? Everybody who, uh, knows. Uh, absolutely, right? We do have, and here again, remember that Satan, right, or the evil one, figures prominently in the Job story as well, right? Who makes a bet with God about the fate of Job. Here, too, we see that uh, Singer, who is able to use all of the uh, treasures of Jewish fable and legend and superstition and myth is able to summon this as a final test of this simple figure and the devil who says, well, you know, the way of the world is to pay back evil with evil. And all of these people have committed evil to you. So do something to them. Let the sages of Frample eat filth, he says, by, let's just say, adulterating the bread in a, in a very special way. And Gimple manages to remain triumphant, right, as a result of this. And so Gimple's foolishness, that is his ability to not act in an ironic and knowledgeable way, because remember that if he did this, he would be the only one who would know that he would have gotten revenge on all of the other people in Frample, right, because they would just eat the bread and they would know. It's sort of the uh, singer equivalent of, you know, the person in the back spitting on the french fries, right before they, they come out, right, which is a staple of, you know, bad <laughs> um, So that is one level. And then, of course, we read our ending, right, of where uh, when the time comes, I will go joyfully. Whatever may be there, it will be real without complication, without ridicule, without deception. God be praised. There even Gimple cannot be deceived, right? And the why And the Gimple decides not to do this, right, because, uh, of course, he, he is convinced not to. Who convinces him, right? Why is he convinced not to do this? What is the ultimate proof for Gimple? That it, please. Good. And do you remember, what does she say? Does anyone remember? She asks forgiveness before she dies, Right. But she, and she confesses on page, let's look on page 13. Uh, does someone want to read, someone who hasn't spoken yet, does someone want to read, uh, starting from I saw in a dream? We're on page 13 in the middle of the page. Please, yes. Stop there. Thank you. So again, right, Elka returns, and she returns from a place, right, beyond this mortal coil, obviously, from a place that in Hebrew slash Yiddish could have been called the Olam HaEmet, which literally means what? People know here? The world of truth, right? There, in the world of medicine, everything is settled, right? They spare you nothing here just because she was false just because this lying world is false. In the true world, of accounts are settled. Elka is being punished. And, you know, she is able to provide Gimple the opportunity of maintaining this kind of moral virtue of not doing wrong. And then the story ends joyfully with Gimple going to the world of truth where his sacrifices 
will be rewarded. Okay? Any comments so far? Because we are not even close to done with the story. Yeah? Oh, but I'd like to comment at the end. Okay. Please. I have a question because somehow uh, this thing reminds me of a story of, I believe it's the other black singer, Yosha Kaur. Uh, it's the other singer, that's right. The other, and what Yosha usually has a dual personality. On one hand, he claims to be the tzaddik of the, uh, of the community, but he's married to the old tzaddik's daughter. Right. On the other hand, he wanders into another town. Everybody calls him a Kelbo because he's a he's a nar, whatever you want to call. Him. Right. Or he has this dual personality, and that, and I'm wondering whether Singer knew about that because there's close elements. Yoshikov was certainly. Uh I'm almost positive. I don't want to say definitively, but it was almost certainly published in Yiddish before Gimple the Fool was published in Yiddish. Certainly, he was working on it uh, at the time, and we know that uh, Isaac Bashevisinger was very familiar with his older brother's work; that he would certainly follow it very closely. Uh, I don't want to get into the details, and we can talk afterwards. But it is certainly the case that the much more the novel-length psychological study of the psychotic break, let's say, that occurs create this sort of Yosha Mooncalf, or Kalb, that takes place, is somewhat different than this sort of, uh, it, you know, there are differences between this sort of fable-like structure that we've sort of established here so far. But we can talk about it more. I just don't want to, uh, because a lot of people here haven't read the novel, but it's a great novel. It's available in an English translation. Uh, if people are interested, you should definitely go uh, pick it up. Um, I do want to say, remember, this was published in English in 1953. And this became Singer's story that broke him not only among Jewish uh, readers who were able to, who did not necessarily know Yiddish and were not following him in the pages of the forward, but also among non-Jewish readers. And I want to ask you, based on what we have said, why do you think this story in 1953 was so appealing to non-Jewish readers? And I will give you one other datum, which may help, which is the line that Singer decided to take out, or I should say more precisely, his translators decided to take out, and Singer decided uh, to approve the translation with that, that sentence omitted. At one point, in one of the periods where Bellow, uh, excuse me, where, where Gimple is saying, uh, you know, who knows, anything could happen, this and that, right? Gimple adds, some people even say that Jesus got up after three days. Who knows? And that sentence is, is, is not there. Uh, so what is it that Singer is trying to do in this story? What are some other parallels that we might think about? And again, why would this then have been so popular in the 1950s to non-Jews as well as Jews? Please. Uh, it seems to me that the story ha is universal. Mm -hmm. uh, it has universal appeal. Uh, on, one le on, one, on the one hand, it splits good and evil. Mm -hmm. On the uh, other hand, it combines the good and evil that everyone has demons of in itself. Mm -hmm. um, the states, the states exist. That's what I mean. The states exist at the same time, um, and yet they don't exist at the same time. Okay. the quantum mechanics. It takes a concept of universal, especially at that time when when good and evil. 
Okay. Uh, and I would build on that by saying, I think that you're right to say that there is a, there's the problem of great evil, which is present. Certainly a, a question that would have been very much on people's minds uh, in the immediate years following World War II. And there was a question of what, uh, of, of what good consists of. And I would ask you again, what precisely does, is Gimple's moral virtue consist of? And why does that appeal to a broader or more universal audience in the way that you're talking about? Right. Uh, someone, anyone I haven't heard from first before I call on people I have heard from? No? And one and two, please. You guys better hand. credibility of Gimple in the face of all these things is he's kind of reminding people of the, uh, the credibility of the American public in the face of all these McCarthy accusations. That's interesting. I have to say I hadn't thought about that before. I mean, it's something I want to think about more. But uh, I think that we can say that there, that there is also, not instead, but also uh, a wider explanation Right, that that would have caused for appeal of people sort of beyond the, the particular moment of the of the, the particular politics, um, and I think that we can say that if we have a figure who is constantly in a state of suffering, and whose moral virtue derives entirely from turning the other cheek, right, from constantly taking on suffering, right, that seems to be awfully familiar to a wide range of people, right. <laughs> Particularly when we know that Singer in the original Yiddish had actually explicitly put Jesus into the text. Right? And as a result, I think that this fits in very nicely with a series of very profound questions that were going around among both Jews and Christians in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, which was the status of the Jewish murdered victim in, during the Holocaust. Right? And there was a move, of course, among non-Jews to canonize these murdered individuals, right? to make them into saint-like figures, right? and that their virtue becomes in their sort of martyred status. And I think that it is not coincidental that this story is breaks in English at almost precisely the same time as the diary of Anne Frank makes its stage uh, transformation. Those of you who know a little bit about the diary know that, in fact, it not only existed as a, a bestseller uh, as a diary form, but it became a very popular stage version. And in that, Anne Frank very famously becomes sort of less explicitly Jewish than she does in the uh, original version. It becomes sort of more of this universal, innocent, murdered figure. And so here in this, we see, we can see, uh, you know, Gimbel becoming someone who says, my moral virtue is precisely in the fact that I transcend the evil of the world by being a sufferer in just the way that martyred Christian saints or the martyred Christian saints of them all do. And it's amazing, it seems to me, how, you know, in, how, how this can create such a wide appeal for Singer uh, among a wider audience as well, portraying the Jews in this particular way. Yeah, please. Right. 
next year and three years. Right. And it created a state of survival. Right. It's a fascinating point. It gets to even a broader question about uh, Singer's perspective towards Israel. Uh, and I will answer it, but though, by looking at the narrow point, which is within this book, within this story. Notice that Gimple essentially remains what they would call in the academies diasporic, right? He remains a wanderer. That's what happens to him at the end of his life. He goes all around. He never sort of settles down. You could have imagined that with his sort of virtuous triumph that he would find something and he would end up being happy. But he really doesn't do that, right? Similarly, Singer, who is, for those of you who know, who were here last night, that we, I pointed out that he never really found himself comfortable. He moved to America in the 30s before the war. He survived the war, but he never really felt himself at home in the United States. So the kind of uh, explanation that the state of Israel provided for many people at this point to say there is sort of a movement towards a definite settling point, that is, right, out of the ashes comes this new state, let's say, Right, is not something that ever particularly resonated with Singer. Singer sets a couple of his ends of his novels in the state of Israel, but they're very tentative, and they, the, the, but, uh, and they don't really work very well. Much more for Singer is this kind of wandering state. But still, okay, so any other comments before I go on? Please, yes. I, th I think that's right. I mean, it ends up becoming something which is much, which it, it's much more, e it's much easier, excuse me, for other people to put their perspective of what Jewishness is on it, right? As opposed to something which is so uh, naughty with detail in the way that you're discussing with the little shoemakers or, 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 with, or certainly with the last demon, right? Which is much more explicitly a story about the Holocaust. If I'm arguing to you that the Holocaust sort of underlies a lot of what's going on in a seemingly simple story, it you have to sort of bring yourself and your perspectives on that to it rather than see it directly in there. Um, and this gets to the final point of something that we bring to it that is not explicitly there, but some of you may be familiar with, which is that the ending of this story is extremely evocative of one of the endings of the most, arguably the, one of the most famous stories in Yiddish literature, maybe the most famous story in Yiddish literature. And it's clear that he knew about this. Because the title of the story is also the name of a Schnorrer figure who is characterized by a first name and then a attribute, right? Just like Gimple the Fool, it's blank the blank. And I'll give you even another clue for those of you who know some Yiddish literature. It is by the figure, one of the figures who I mentioned last night, for those of you who are here, I.L. Parrots. Anyone? Bunch of the Silent. Exactly. Bunch of Schweig. And Bunch of the Silent is a story by Eyal by Peretz, as I said, about a Schnorrer figure, basically. It's sort of like a, you know, a guy who goes through life, all sorts of evil is done to him. He sort of remains silent, right? And finally, he dies in this sort of terrible way, right, this beggar's thing. And he ends up uh, going to heaven. And, you know, heaven is willing to give him anything he wants, as a result of sort of putting up with all of the injustices that life is, right? But now, in the world of truth, he gets his reward. And Peretz, at the end of the story, does anyone know how Peretz ends the story? Anyone remember? It's with a fresh roll and a little butter, right? Life has so destroyed him that all he is capable of asking for, his dreams, all of heaven's storehouses are open to him. 
and all he is capable of asking for is right, a savagely ironic ending. Right. I think we have to think about that in terms of this particular story. All along, for the last 25 minutes or so, we have been operating under the assumption that essentially this is an optimistic ending of the story, and that then, therefore, casts light on the entire story. You had used the word optimist before, right? And that is one way of reading it. And I would say, to be fair, it's the way that almost everybody reads the story. But I would just like to suggest that that's not necessarily the way. This is the nice thing about literature. There's no wrong or right. They're just sort of alternative perspectives. And to say that, how do we know that the biggest, that Gimple is not fooling himself about this as well? Right? I mean, all he knows is that he's dying poor and lonely on a beggar's bed. His evidence came from a dream of his dead wife, right? The dream which is psychologically perfectly understandable. Who knows? And we know that Gimple has demonstrated. He tells us himself he has demonstrated the capacity of fooling himself, fooling himself very, very well over the course of his life. Maybe uh, Gimple is wrong all along. And so this is one of the reasons why I think that this is such a masterful story, Singer's Great Master, is that Singer was very happy to let the world think that, oh, this is such a nice story, it's a sweet story, it's about moral virtue, it's about sort of appealing to a universal context, it's all of these things. And so people justly lauded him and celebrated him and said, oh, look what you're doing, and it's so wonderful, and this and that. But Singer himself knew that, uh, you know, there were levels and levels and layers. And so we can read it in this capacity as well. So I've given you a couple of different readings, uh, and, and we, can think, we can talk about it more. Please, I haven't heard from you yet. One of the most unsatisfying parts, in my mind, reading, writing, uh, reading as a late 20th century, early 21st century person, uh, of the Bible is the ending of the book of Job, right? Which, as we've said, is sort of something also that Singer's putting in mind, right? Job has all of these terrible depredations. He spends many, many chapters, it's a very long book, going through how terrible everything is. And then at the end it says, oh, and by the way, God says... You're right, and you know he gives you back. He gives Joe back all of his property, and he gives him, in, in one of the sort of hardest details to understand, other children to replace the children that he's lost. Right? And we're supposed to take this as a happy ending, right? But reading this with modern eyes, right, we find this extraordinarily unsatisfying. In a similar way, I think, to the way that you're talking about now, is that that this ending. Uh, it has to be viewed with a kind of skepticism. All of this pain to say, oh no, but it's okay because I'm going to this happy place. It just is not satisfying in the way that uh, it would have been in a traditional perspective. And although Singer is writing this in the form and the structure of a traditional story, we can never forget that he is writing this as a mid-20th century writer uh, who is uh, you know, as much an heir to Thomas Mann uh, and Franz Kafka as he is to the... Uh, Meisebuch or other tale, other works of the Yiddish literary tradition. Uh, 
Sir, you first, and then and then you. I think, you know, it's funny because Singer, it seems to me, was not a man who was, unlike many of his com compatriots in the literary Yiddish world of the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, was not a solutions provider. There were a lot of people who said, let us act to bring about a new stage, whether that be Zionism, whether it be socialism, whether it be communism, any ism of the time, even Americanism, right? Any of these isms... and. Everybody had a position, or almost everybody. But Singer, it seems to me, and, and people can certainly disagree with me, but really didn't. He was very good at articulating the problems, as you're pointing out, the problems of passivity. But that didn't, to him, suggest that there was a solution that should have then been, uh, been you know, adopted. Uh, in the Yiddish version of The Family Muscat, one of Singer's early novels, a chap in a chapter which has been elided, uh, not elided, omitted from the English translation because it was considered to be too pessimistic. Uh, Singer's one of Singer's characters gets the last word and says, "Death is the final sol is the only solution." I should say that's that's the uh, that's all that there is. Uh, you can understand why the English publishers might have said, "Well, maybe we can cut that back a little bit." <laughs> but uh, the fact of the matter is that it's not clear that Singer ever comes to solutions about anything. Is it a critique of the passivity? I think he's not happy with the passivity, but he's not happy with activity either. So it's, it's, it's not fair to sort of, it, it's fair to point out the critique, but it, it, I just want to make sure that we make sure to say that it's, it's, it's not the only critique that he has. He criticizes basically uh, everything. And, but in that vein, uh, I want people to start moving, shifting in their heads to the, the last demon of the other Holocaust story, which we can talk about. But I'll take these comments while we're, Thinking about it, yeah. One, and, uh, I'm sorry, he had his hand up first, and then, and then you, yeah. Uh, it just occurred to me that there's a line in this. When I was <laughs> reading it, it, it really struck me that right near the end where he, where he says, no doubt the world isn't entirely an imaginary world, but it is only one of the world. Right. And it's almost as if he's sitting there talking about the gap between consciousness and reality and saying, look, all, I may have been a fool all my life, but all these other people, like, uh, you know, Alka, have all been fooling themselves, right. right? And the thing to me that made it universal is that he discovers that, that everybody is, is cursed with the gap between their consciousness and reality. Right. And that's a, an excellent way of describing the travail, the mental travail that Singer had throughout his entire life, right? Uh, in other words, Singer was a man who all of the characters who were stand-ins for him have these incredible philosophical... Uh, expositions or justifications of their actions or what have you, all of these kind of behaviors, to explain all these behaviors. But the fact of the matter is that they are all aware that they just want things. They just want to do things. Primarily in Singer's case, they just want to have sex. Uh, and he tries to say, well, the truth is that it's this and it's this and that and that and that. But it really is just 
what it is, and he's trying to make those things together, that gap between consciousness and sort of reality, as you're putting it. And he never really squares the circle. I mean, and, and he really, I think, ends up with a, a sort of huge doubt about whether that could actually be squared. So in that vein, your question, I want people to think about the position of the demon at the end of the story of the last demon. And I'm going to ask about that as soon as we get to the question. But what, what is going on at the end of that story? But first, you. I just had a question. Yeah, please. He said that he presented the question that was not a man of solution. Mm-hmm. I th- do you want to? T- yeah, sure. yeah, please, of course. There's a wonderful essay by Richard Weiss mm-hmm. in the beginning of, um, I think it's Saint Desiree. Yes. Which he talks about his father was a consultant, Jesse McDevy, and his brother was a consultant. He saw the shortcomings of his worldview, but he never really absorbed himself in his worldview, like he said, as finding a solution. He mm-hmm. says there is no solution, and so he just presents the question as the problem. So that's the first yeah. time. I, th- I think it is. I mean, he's, if, you, if you read, Singer spent most of his life writing memoirs about his life. Uh, but if you, if you look at a bunch of them that are published sort of later on, not the In My Father's Court, the most famous one, but they all have in their English versions uh, the words in search of. There's a little boy, a boy in search of God, and there's a, a young man in search of love, and I think a man in search of art or something like that. I can't quite remember the English titles. But they all are about the search and they're never really about the finish of the search. They're never about the solution. That was just who he seems to have been. And in many ways, it's one of the reasons why he remains more resonant to us than many of those writers who wrote things like uh, the Yiddish poet Itzik Pfeffer, who said, Stalin is the solution, right? I have found the solution, and his name is Stalin, right? Or, and it wouldn't have to be Stalin. It could just be his name is, you know, its name is the red flag of the working class, or its name is... Uh, whatever you want to say. Its name is sort of wholehearted American acceptance or, or whatever. Uh, solutions stale a lot of times. The definitude in those stories, they just seem much less open and there's much less to do with them. So I want to talk about then the open ending of The Last Demon. We should start moving on. Um, I don't want you to feel like you've read... People always feel like they've read stories for nothing if you don't get to them. And I say, well, you haven't read them for nothing. <laughs> But you'll feel like less for nothing if we get to that. But uh, what about, what's this ending of The Last Demon? Right? Not a happy ending, I think it's fair to say. What, what, what's the situation that, our, uh, that our, our little Jewish demon finds himself in at the end? Anybody? He's stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, I mean, that's absolutely true. That In other words, we have him in this sort of frozen state, right? Uh, he is in a town, right? His job is to interact with human beings, but there aren't human beings left, essentially, for him to interact with, right? They've all been killed. And he is, there's something very strange that he is doing, right? He has to live, right? Demons have to derive sustenance as well. And so he's doing, he's doing it in a very strange way, right? What is he doing? He's eating words, exactly. And what kind of words? Yiddish words, absolutely. And Yiddish words from what? A storybook. Good. This is on page 186. I found a Yiddish storybook, as you pointed out. Does anyone want to read that paragraph? 
Anyone? Well, just go for it. <laughs> See, that's what I like. Ardency. I found the Yiddish storybook. It's the last full paragraph on the page. Piety. <laughs> the moral of the book is neither judge nor judgment. But nevertheless, the letters are Jewish. The alphabet is not stronger. Stop there. Thank you. I'm sorry, please, yes. What? Okay, what is that? What does he mean? I mean, because this is, as you said, this is the key to, I think, understanding the story and Singer's involvement in this story. Remember that for those of you who were here last night, I suggested to you that Singer often liked talking about demons. He sort of presented a lot of these first-person stories from the perspective of demons, uh, like this one. And what is going on with this, the alphabet they could not squander? What is going on with the fact that this, this book that, that is deriving sustenance from is not a, a, a holy book, right? That is the opposite of a holy book, right? It is a blasphemous book. And then how does that relate to the beginning of the story, right, where the demon comes and essentially finds himself out of a job before, you know, the Nazis get to the town, right? The reason that he's in trouble from the beginning is not because there are no people. That's the problem at the end. But the problem at the beginning is that, you know, the world has, has cooked up, as it says, a new dish of kasha here, and something has changed, right? So how do all of these questions fit together? Any, any sort of first approaches? Any ideas? Yeah, please. Okay. Judaism has survived because of the book, but which book? We say that the Jews are the people of the book. If you had to pick one book, what would the book be? The Bible. Presumably that's, that is often what people meant, but that is precisely, interestingly, not what this means here. Yeah. Uh, that there was survival because of the letters, mm -hmm. not because of the book. So when he says that uh, when the last letter is gone, uh, brought back to me, to me the Martyrology, when there's a statement that they were burned, that they were burned in the uh, Sefer Torah, but the letters flew up to heaven. Good. And the letters being an interface, really, between thought and speech. Good. If the letters are gone, then the fire, then everything is gone. The fire existed. Good. And in fact, the Yiddish, as I mentioned to you, to some people last night, the Yiddish title of this is not The Last Demon. Uh, it's not the Yiddish equivalent of The Last Demon, but it is Maisa Tishevitz, a story of Tishevitz, which is a formula that is always used in traditional texts for a story of the martyrdom of a particular community. So there is a very clear link, as you're suggesting, to martyrology here. But what is interesting is that it, the letters that are being grasped are not as in the traditional tales that fly up, those of the Torah or the Talmud or the holy books that martyrs are clasping to themselves, but it is something about the words of Yiddish, of Yiddish texts themselves, that this last demon, this um, avatar of impiety, right, who is holding on to, let's just say, secular Yiddish literature, has become the only authentic maintainer of Judaism, of Jewish religion, right? That the Jewish demon has become sort of the last holder on to Judaism, and does so through, uh, again, secular Yiddish literature. 
So what in the first part of the story seems to become the cause of the dissolution of traditional Jewish society, right? Remember that the demons don't have anything to do. They be, they're the bad guys, right? But really the bad guys end up being the human secularists who have sort of convinced all of the people to sin. Now become the people who have some authentic linkage to a vanished world, right? Whatever that linkage is. And so the alphabet becomes the thing that still manages to maintain a kind of cohesive, coherent, con continuous identity. That ends up being the thing that will survive for as long as it does. And so we see here, I had spoken both last night and today about Singer feeling himself a little bit of a remnant of a ghost, right? Here we have this image of an individual sort of continuing to write in these Yiddish letters, continuing to write this Yiddish literature, and just hoping, right, that there is... Um, a, a kind of possibility of continuity left, but sort of fearing or maybe even knowing that that is not the case. I think you have your hand up, sir. Yeah. Aren't you challenging Singer with the question, can you define what a Jew is? Uh, I don't think that I would say that I would be challenging Singer with define what a Jew is. I think that Singer in the, the text is raising the question of how does Jewish identity uh, continue right in the, in the wake of the destruction of what for him and I want to be clear about what for him was his Jewish world, right? Not the Jewish world, not any Jewish world, but the world of his life. He, ne he never seems to really have felt uh, to himself to be an American in the way that we would define uh, sort of that, that term comfortably, right? Uh, his, his writings are about either, as I said last night, either Eastern Europe or Amer Eastern European emigres in America, and that he not only feels that link, but also made a very successful literary career of presenting himself as that link. Right? So, so I think that he is raising that question. Other people, of course, would have raised the question very different ways. Uh, someone else, I think, on this side had a hand up? Or? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Just in the very last line, in the last letter of John, the last letter of Mimi, Well, I mean, I think that you're right to say this is an elegy, right? This is an elegiac tone. I mean, he is writing this. One of the most powerful works about the Holocaust that Singer writes, and this is one of them, but another one, is he writes in uh, 1943, if I recall correctly, an essay called Concerning Yiddish Literature in Poland. And he just talks, and he doesn't mention basically the Holocaust at all, but what it is is he writes about all of the people in Poland that he knew when he was in Warsaw, uh, having a sort of beginning literary career before he moves to the United States in the mid-30s. And he talks about sort of what they are, what they write, who they're all... and the line, which of course is in everybody's mind as they are reading this in 1943, because they knew, is that all of these people are in very deep trouble, if not already dead. Right? And so, it's, again, it becomes reading it with those eyes of the Yiddish readers who would have read this in 1943, one of the saddest things. S one, one second, if you don't mind. Similarly here, right, we have this idea of saying, look, just, it's just the facts of the case. Singer looks around. He knows that Europe has been, Jewish, Yiddish Europe certainly has been destroyed. American Yiddish through dem demography is, uh, you know, having a problem. Uh, will, will pass away, and at that point, certainly in Israel, uh, there was, you know, it was very difficult uh, to see a future uh, for Yiddish in Israel, and so there is that kind of elegiac tone. 
that goes on here. I do want to start, I, I would be more than willing to talk more about The Last Demon, but I do want to say that there is a more optimistic tone that he does strike in the final story, The Little Shoemakers, and I want to try and figure out the optimism there, but I will take a couple other comments or questions. Please. I thought you wanted to... It's, what extent is the destruction of European Jewry opens up his opportunity as a writer for some of that? There's an irony there. Yeah, there is... He's able to write about this view that no longer exists, and it seems like he has a free open... Right. Many people think he has free open reign in what he wants to write, but he keeps writing about what no longer exists. No one can really argue with him. I will see... Yeah, I will see your irony and raise you. I just was watching ESPN's <laughs> World Series of Poker. <laughs> uh, and... Because it is, there is a double opportunity. Remember, as I, as I said last night, again, that Singer had a kind of creative writer's block for the first seven years that he arrived in America. Before that, he, he was publishing, but he was publishing sort of nonfiction materials. Um, he, however, uh, you know, started writing again in 1943, 1944, and that's when Gimple was written in Yiddish, and a couple of these other demon stories are written around then. Uh, so what happens then, of course, as you say, is the destruction of European Jewry and also the sudden death of a heart attack of his older brother, Israel Joshua Singer, who was at that point the famous singer in the family and the one who was sort of, uh, he was constantly operating in his shadow. And so think about the uh, intimate and personal psychological complexity of that. I mean, of course, there was the big issue of, of, of the Holocaust, but just saying now I can be the singer that everybody thinks about, but it's only because my older brother has passed away. Uh, and, and this was clearly something that he worked through for, for a very long time. So I think you're right to say that Singer's entire act of composition was always fraught with these, these, these issues. It was not a simple process for him to write. That being said, he seems to have you know, done a pretty good job because he was very, very prolific. Um, one of the, Singer may be one of the few great world writers who has, who, the majority, yeah, I would even say this, the majority of whose work has never been published in book form. Most of it, forget about it in English, I'm not talking about it in English, in Yiddish, it was never published in book form because uh, it was done originally in serials for the forward, almost entirely for the forward, and it never, by the time uh, Singer really became famous, there was simply the economics were not such to publish Yiddish books of his materials. In recent years, some of the uh, uh, academies in Israel have been publishing some of the work in Yiddish, but the vast majority of Singer's Yiddish work remains uh, locked away on microfilms in the archives uh, of the Forward or in the New York Public Library or what have you. Okay, any other comments or we're gonna move, we're gonna move on, yes. Right. Well, thank you. We okay. We'll stop there. Um, no, that that I I think that you're right to point out that there really is a, a real shift in this story. That this story uh, begins even with the statement, "I am the last demon. I bear the witness that the demon is left." But we don't. We really think that it's talking about this sort of almost farcical organic process of, oh, you see, the world has gone, you know, literally, one could say with demons, to hell in a handbasket, and so you don't need the demons anymore. And then he really takes this very sharp curve into much more dark and serious business. Uh, and th there's no question that uh, this is a very surprising turn in the story and something that really not many writers could pull off, you know, to really handle both sides of that story well. But this, again, is... 
I think a lot of the architecture of the great Jewish comedy, which plays for the highest stakes, which is to say, how do you handle farce and tragedy in the same sentence? The, the most uh, famous example of this is in Shalom Aleichem's Tevye stories, right, which become the basis for Fiddler on the Roof, but are themselves very different from the Fiddler on the Roof stories. He talks about um, his, one of his daughters, one of his beloved daughters, basically leaving to go to Siberia for reasons I won't get into. He never sees her again, and there's this extremely pathetic, in the technical sense, full of pathos, moment about saying, oh, huddle, I miss her, huddle, huddle, huddle. And he says, well, enough of this, Mr. Shalom Aleichem. Let's talk about something cheerier. Have you heard anything about the cholera outbreak in Odessa? <laughs> right. So, you know, you, you have that. Okay. But on to something that is genuinely, I think, more optimistic, right? That is The Little Shoemakers, right? Which is a tale of survival rather than one of destruction, right? The Nazis are mentioned in this, right, the destruction of Frample and such, but basically all of the characters who we uh, identify with either survive or die of natural causes. Abba's wife dies of natural causes, right? Uh, so what is going on in this, this story? The, what, what is the optimistic message that Singer is trying to send in this story? If, we do, if, we, if people agree with me that we kind of feel happy at the end of the story, uh, this is a very technical a strategy that we use in the literature business. How do you, do you feel happy or sad at the end of the story? Uh, how, why is it that we do? Uh, anyone who I haven't heard from yet? Other, uh, one gives me, no, okay. Uh, it seems to me that uh, for the most part, the story says that children, uh, children return. Okay. Children, they seem to, to they seem to reject your, uh, But shoemaking, and look, uh, when all is said and done, near the end, they're back, they're making shoes with you. And uh, I, I would like to tie that in very briefly to the first story where uh, Gimbo may or may not have been. Gimbo was uh, not the progenitor of his mm. children. Right. They didn't, which implies that they did not belong to him. Uh, looking backwards, as uh, many of our older parents do, none of our children really belong to us. Sorry about you, you young folks, they don't belong to us, whether we um, biologically or not biologically. Okay, so certainly one, there are a couple of things that I want to take out of this, your, your comment, right? One of which is, uh, certainly we have a sense of continuity, right, which, which comes through here, right, that there is a continuity that is maintained, even if they don't belong to it, right, they all end up in the same house, they're all singing the same song they did as a child, as children, um, and that that continuity has something to do with values, as you put it, right? There is something more than just shoemaking uh, that's happening here. Uh, and one of the, on the, on the most basic level, right, there's, a, there's songs that come through this, and that already invites us to think of this as something artistic that Singer is actually talking about, right? That this is a question about Singer's reflection on art. But I want to, Ari, I want to take Ari's comment. Yeah, yeah. Kids have obviously given up their traditional Judaism, but the father brings 
communicate with them, and so he's able to act out his tradition, where the first way I see it, an allegory of this is shoeing, you know, his the tradition that he brought up, the kids took it took it a totally different direction, and when they see each other, it allows them to reach some relationship where they were able to reach some kind of rough correspondence, where he can still act out, pretend or believe he's living in an old world, building the shoes the old way. The kids have their big factories yet, they can also interact with their parents on that certain level, which is a Judaism on some base level. Great. Uh, any other comments before, please, because I want to follow up on that, but yeah. I think there's no question that what we have here, in a, first to, to combine these points, right, in this movement from old world to new world, right, the question is first, how are figures going, from the old world going to live in the new world? Will they desiccate or will they flourish, right? And uh, how will the, the values or the artistic actions that these people represent how will they work out in the new world, right? Is this world different or is it the same? So certainly we can see here, remember, Bashevis's own trajectory, coming from the old world to the new world, floundering for a while, and then being able once more to flourish by pointing out that there is, um, if I can put it this way, there is a space in the market for old world retail goods, right, that are have continuities with new American families, right? That people will, will value these old world things, these old stories from people, then that will in some sense bring them back to life, right? At the same time, right, we do have this idea that the future of shoes, let's read Yiddish culture, right, or traditional Jewish culture, will be something which will be a melange of the old and the new, right? It would not survive without some actual spirit of the old in it. But making the old new is going to be the way that it will appeal to a mass group of people. And so in many ways, we have Singer here talking about uh, his, own, uh, his own prospects and the prospects for the literature which he loves and writes in. Yes? I think that's right. I mean, and I think that one of the things that makes that very clear is uh, the establishment of that sort of old house or sort of shoemaker's house on the, on the grounds, right? That the whole first part of the story, we all have all these paragraphs and paragraphs about that house, that old house where they all lived in, and it gets rotten and this and that. And in this wonderful moment, I mean, which just sort of cries out, I am a symbol, right? Uh, the moment he leaves, the house kind of collapses, right? Uh, but then they're able, as you say, because home is where you are and where your values are and the way you that he is able to construct uh, this, old, this old building, this replica of an old building on the new thing. And it is sort of false, but it's sort of not false either, right? And I think that that is the power of Singer in America also, that he's sort of like an old world person, but he's sort of not an old world person. And that, you know, that combination is really what makes him so unique. Uh, Ma'am, you had your hand up, and then you. Yeah. 
I think that it's a great point to make, as you're suggesting, that creativity for Singer seems to have some connection with wandering or with travel, right? That, that, and I think that that is, that is very important, that uh, a lot of Singer's power in his position in the market, and also, in, I think, in his own sense, comes from having gone somewhere else, right? He's in America now, and he's bringing the old world to them, or, or, and the course of his journeys. One of his novels, which has never been published in, in, in English, is called A Ship to America, and it's really about that thing. Many of his stories from the later career in his life are about a singer protagonist, that is, a writer who has become somewhat famous, who is traveling all over the world and then encounters people on the way, right, who say, oh, I have something I'll tell you, and I'll tell you this story. And the only way that that story, it's clear from the setup, the only way that story would have come to us or to the writer is by virtue of his traveling. If he had stayed Still, he never would have gotten any of it. Singer's characters, although not Singer himself, interestingly enough, but Singer's characters were, are never the kind of people who just sort of sit and wait for life to happen to them. They kind of go somewhere and then wait for life to happen to them. Uh, please, you know your hand. I mean, yeah, it's a very interesting process. And for example, uh, now in, in Israel, particularly, people are doing a lot of work on the 50s and the, you know, as, a, as a decade, right, right after the Holocaust. Uh, because on the one hand, there were all of these ideological reasons uh, that people had, and very compelling ideological and philosophical reasons, not to speak Yiddish, not to deal with Yiddish, or what have you. On the other hand, this was the language that many of them spoke. It was their, 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 their language they were comfortable in. Singer, I'm sure, was asked many, many times, why don't you just write in English? I mean, you know, your main audience is in English. You're spending all this time on the translation. You know English well, which he, which he did, certainly. I mean, you have to remember that by the end of his life, Singer had spent almost three times as much time in the United States as he had when in, uh, in, 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 in Poland, excuse me. But Yiddish was what he lived. Yiddish was what he wrote in. And that, I think, ultimately ends up being the truth about uh, you know, the complexities of this, that there is something that's in your bones, there is something that is, you know, we're, we're certainly for Singer and for many of his characters as well. I think that at this point we're gonna have to stop. Thank you all very, very much. Uh, it was a lot of fun, thank you. Thank you all, and uh, hope to see you again this week with Rabbi Alan Liu on Wednesday, and then um, Rabbi Leader in September at many more programs. Have a nice day. I hope you enjoyed the program. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. We have to have you drop the if that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I'll give you some time to stay here. Okay. Yeah.